We'll find uh, Genesis 25. We'll come back to our prayer list later. And I, I do hope you'll, you'll be able to see the board wherever you're seated. If you're not, you may want to move somewhere where you can. Because at the close of tonight's message, we're going to jump over to the New Testament to talk more about Abraham. Okay? We have been looking for the past number of weeks, about six or seven weeks at least, uh, on Abraham. Uh, Tonight we're in Genesis 25 and we're continuing to talk about the subject matter, the life and times of a man of God. The life and times of a man of God. And of course in chapter 25 uh, we are looking at his death and what uh, the events surrounding uh, his death. So pick up with me in verse 1, and we will read down through verse 11. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Question, has anybody named their kids this lately? I kind of doubt it. Okay. Jokshan uh, begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Luamim. Luamim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak. Abadah and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac his son to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife, and it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahiroi. Folks, you may have heard about uh, Blaise Pascal, the great Christian philosopher. No doubt you've heard of him before. Who has heard of Pascal's wager theory? Anybody? You know what the wager theory is? I guess not if you've not heard of it, right? It's still used today sometimes in witnessing to skeptics. Uh, the Pascal wager theory was, was that theory that said, you know, if, if I give 
give everything in my life to the Lord Jesus and I die. And it turns out that God is not real. Of course, we know He is real because we have the testimony of the Spirit. And we know the life change that He's done in our lives. But again, remember, you're talking to a skeptic or an atheist who says there is no God. And you tell him, you know what? If I die as a Christian and it turns out that God's not real, I've not lost anything. Uh, In fact, I gained a great deal of assurance and abundance in my life living for Jesus. But if you die as an atheist, you're going to lose everything. If Christian truth is true, but you've banked on it not being true, you're going to die And you will have lost everything for all of eternity. So just from the standpoint of view of a a wager, you would be better off to trust in the Lord. Even if Christianity did not turn out to be true. That's uh, Blaise Pascal's wager theory. Again, even today, sometimes it's used in apologetics. Listen to what Pascal went on to say about the death of his father. This is his testimony about the death of his father, a godly man. And I want to quote here what Pascal said. He said, We who are bereaved by the death of our father will find no solid relief unless we acknowledge that what has occurred is a result not of chance, nor of some fatal necessity of nature, nor of the interplay of the elements or parts of the human condition. It is rather an event indispensable, inevitable, just, holy, and useful for the well-being of the church and for the exaltation of the name and of the glory of God, An intervention of providence decreed from all eternity to take place in the fullness of time in such a manner. What is left for us is to unite our will to that of God himself. To will in him, with him, and for him the thing that he has eternally willed in us and for us. In other words, Blaise Pascal took comfort in two things in the face of his father's death. First, he took comfort that everything surrounding his father's death was not an accident. It was not a result of of fate, but was instead part of God's sovereign plan. It was part of God's sovereign plan and God is a loving God who has a sovereign plan for each and every life. And Blaise Pascal took comfort in that. The death of his father was not a result of fate or coincidence or anything in this world, but it was God's plan. And secondly, he took comfort in the fact that he needed to align his own will to that of God's will concerning the life of his father. Folks, that is a very mature way to look at death, is it not? A very mature way. 
Well, in chapter 25 of Genesis, we will see the death of Abraham, who as much as anyone in the entire Bible serves as a great example to us of a life of faith. If this chapter says anything to us, I think the life lesson is that we need to be faithful unto death. And if there's any adjustments you and I need to make in our lives so that we can be faithful unto death, we need to make those adjustments while we still have time. Now, first of all tonight, I want you to see with me from verses 1 to 4 that in his later years, Abraham took another wife. Look again at verse 1. It says, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. Now folks, other than what we read here in Genesis 25 about Keturah, we know nothing else about her. She shows up rather suddenly on the pages of Scripture and she passes off the pages of Scripture just as quickly. We know very little of her. You know, oftentimes in the later years of one's life, when when a spouse dies, it's not unusual, it's not unusual at all to see someone take another mate. We see it all the time in church. If someone does that, don't think of it as being unusual. Don't think of it as being disobedient. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. That someone who has their mate die and they remarry can remarry without the stigma of adultery at all. Because that, that marriage relationship was dissolved with death. So that a person is able to marry again without the stigma of adultery. And so it's not unusual at all to see someone take another spouse after the death of their mate. Now the fact that people see the need to do that is a testimony to us about something that we've read already in the book of Genesis. And what would that be? Exactly. Genesis 1 and 2 points out that man was created for a relationship at the most intimate level, the level of marriage. Genesis 2.18 says, God saw Adam all alone and said, It is not good for the man to be alone. We are created for human relationships. Senior adults who lose a loved one of many years often tell me that the worst part of losing a mate is loneliness. The loneliness that sets in. Oftentimes the senior adult man uh, doesn't even hardly know how to boil water. I'm, I'm being serious. I'm not being critical. Uh, but he won't, he won't know how to do anything. Oftentimes, senior adult women will tell me uh, about how they feel unsafe. 
They feel vulnerable. They feel like it's easy for them now to be taken advantage of. And so whether it's a senior adult man or a senior adult woman, uh, there's a huge loss in their lives. There's a void. There's an emptiness there now. You know, I think this is an area where churches today perhaps need to do a little bit better ministering to people. If you're in this situation, I would encourage you to jump into ministry. Don't, don't pull back and isolate yourself from other people. Jump headlong into ministry. Stay involved in Sunday school. Maybe even get involved as a volunteer at the hospital. Or at the Baptist Association or somewhere like that. Stay involved in ministry. Or get involved in ministry. And stay plugged in with other people. Uh, Folks, that is very, very important. Because what's the tendency? The tendency would be to pull back. To isolate yourself. And maybe even stay at home. Don't do that. That would not be healthy in the long run. But for those of us who are not in this situation, I think there's something we need to understand better than we do. When you've been married for 40 or 50 or 60 years with the Bible saying that the two shall become one flesh, when a person is left behind by a mate that dies, they feel lost because a very real part of them has died. I think we need to recognize the difficulty of that situation and we need to do more to look after our senior saints. Amen? Another tendency is to sometimes be overly anxious for the person left behind to run out and marry again too quickly. Through the years of my ministry, I've known senior adults who would do that. They would lose a mate, and before long, just a a month or two would go by, and all of a sudden, you would hear that they were engaged to be married again. And I've seen occasions where that was a huge mistake, because they ended up jumping into another marriage, and the person they married had a totally different value system than they had. And they'd not been with that person long enough to really discover that. I know of a situation connected to a family in our church. They're not here anymore. But the man's father died. Uh, Excuse me, his, his, his mother died and his father rushed out and married another woman... And that other woman forbade him from having anything else to do with his kids or grandkids from the first marriage. Now that should have been a major red flag to him. He had been very close to his granddaughters who were in our youth group here. Very close. But his second wife wouldn't let him have anything to do with anybody in his family from his first marriage. Now, why he put up with that, why he tolerated that, I don't know. But he did. 
And it broke his son's heart. It broke his daughter's heart. His two granddaughters that were here, it broke their hearts. So be careful about both of those extremes. You know, pulling back in loneliness and isolating yourself, but then jumping into another marriage too quickly. But all of that aside, let me say it's not unusual at all to see somebody remarry, especially if they're still of sound mind and body. Because, you know, they tell me it's awfully lonely at mealtime especially to eat alone. So what does Abraham do? Abraham remarries. No judgment, good or bad, is assigned to his actions here. And though we're not told in the text, we know that his second marriage lasted anywhere from 35 to 38 years. Folks, his marriage to Keturah wasn't just a matter of a few years. 35 to 38 years. When you look at the chronology of Abraham's life. Now, we have further indications that his marriage to her lasted quite a while. What's the further indication in the, te- in the text? Children. He had six sons by Keturah. I can almost guarantee you this is not something we think of much in the church. When we think of Abraham and we think of his marriage to Sarah... And Isaac being the son of promise. Almost never do we think about Abraham having a second wife, being married to her for 38 years, and having six sons through her. But that's the case. Folks, the reason we don't know much about her or these sons is because they don't factor into the storyline of redemption in the Bible. As I've told you before, the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything. That's not the intention of the Bible. Sometimes skeptics are upset because the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything. But that's outside of the boundaries of what the Bible is intended to do. If the Bible told us everything about everything, we would need a locomotive to carry the Bible around. And boy, that wouldn't be very practical, would it? The Bible essentially tells us about the storyline of redemption. How to be right with God. And after being made right with God, how to live the Christian life to be prepared to meet Him one day. That's what the Bible tells us about. That's the intent of the Scripture. And because Keturah and these sons that she had with Abraham don't factor into that storyline of redemption, we're not told anything else about them other than what we read here. And that should not strike us as being unusual at all. Well, secondly, I want you to see tonight, in his later years, Abraham showed kindness to his other children, but he kept his focus on the son of promise. 
Look at verse 5 and verse 6. It says, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which he had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac his son to the country of the east. It's important to see that Abraham was very kind to all of his children. He was a wealthy man and he gave gifts to all of his kids But he kept his focus where God wanted him to. Isaac was the son of promise. And to Abraham's credit, he never forgot that. We do not have indication in the text that Abraham showed favoritism that resulted in resentment. That's going to happen later on in Genesis, right? Who's it going to happen with? It's going to happen with Jacob. What did did Jacob do that caused resentment? What did he do? What what did Jacob do with Joseph that, that set up resentment? Coat of many colors to Joseph. And he showed favoritism uh, to where all of his other sons resented that, right? Because they knew their dad favored their little brother Joseph. Folks, there's no indication that Abraham is, is doing that with his other children. He's kind to them. He gives gifts to them. But again, he keeps his focus on Isaac. He doesn't get sidetracked from God's promises to Isaac. Now, while he was still living, verse 6 tells us he sent his other sons away from Isaac. And I know it's an argument from silence, but I think it's important to note that apparently no hostilities resulted from this. It'd be easy to say from the standpoint of living in 2019 that this led to further resentment between Isaac and his siblings later on, but we have no indication of that at this point. Now, we know there's a great deal of hostility today between the Jews and their Arab kinfolks. But the the Bible tells us this results from the animosity between Isaac and Ishmael. Not Isaac and these six boys listed here. Chapter 16, verse 12, indicates that it's the hostility between Ishmael and his kinfolks. But back to Abraham, he sends these other sons away. He's showing great resolve and focus on Isaac and the promises that God had made to him surrounding Isaac. He's not letting anything interfere with that. He is a man focused on God's promise even up to the point of his death. Now folks, in that regard, I think Abraham is a great example to us. We know that circumstances will change in life. We might even lose a mate. We might even remarry and have other children. But through it all, what do we need to do? We need to stay focused on God. Now you would think as somebody ages, that would be easy to do. 
But it's not always easy to do. Even seniors lose that focus on God sometimes as they age. And so the life lesson from Abraham's life at this point is to make whatever adjustments you need to make so you can be faithful to God right up to the end of your life. Now, third thing I want you to see tonight. Abraham's earthly existence comes to an end, but not without recognition and celebration. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Abraham goes the way of all the earth, that is, he dies. Why does this happen? Why do we die? It's appointed unto man wants to die and after this the judgment. And why is that? Because of sin. We die because of sin. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is what? Death. And it's very clear from Genesis chapter 3 that it's speaking of physical death as well as spiritual death. Because what does God say to Adam? Adam, you are going to die. You're going to return to the dust of the earth from whence you came. And so God is talking about both physical death and spiritual death as a result of sin. The wages of sin is death. If Jesus tarries, we are all going to die. Now, folks, it is the book of Genesis that first supplies us with this information about death. Without the Bible, we might view death from purely humanistic angles. That we simply age, our bodies wear out, and we die. But it is the Bible that gives us the reason as to why we die. Again, it's because of sin. Now, I mentioned last week that in the Hebrew of verse 8, when it said that Abraham was full of years, it means more than just 365 days of a calendar year times 175 years of Abraham's life. It carries with it the idea that he was deeply satisfied with his life. In other words, at 165 years of age, he was able to look back on his life and he did not have any regrets. He lived his life without any regrets. Why? Because he had obeyed God. He had lived for God. Was he perfect? No. I've said over and over again that Abraham did not pass all of the tests and trials he had in his life. He failed some of them. But the overall testimony of his life was that he had obeyed God. 
when he did fail and God chastened him and God corrected him, he always got back on the right pathway. And he picked up where he left off and he continued serving God. He lived by faith. And because of that, he was able to get to the end of his life and he didn't have regrets. Folks, there's great hope and promise in that. The life of Abraham says that we can live that way. However long God gives you on this earth, you can be satisfied with the years that God gives to you. Listen to what one Russian novelist had to say. He said, aging is in no sense a punishment from on high, but brings its own blessings and a warmth of colors all its own. There is warmth to be drawn from the waning of your own strength. You can no longer get through a whole day's work, but how good it is to slip into the brief oblivion of sleep And what a gift to wake up once more to the clarity of your second or third morning of the day. You are still of this life, yet you are rising above the material plane. Growing old serenely is not a downhill path, but an ascent. For a hundred years, Abraham has lived... As a stranger, a pilgrim, a sojourner on this earth. And now he's come to the end of his life. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die. Folks, King David said in Psalm 139 that God numbers all of our days before we live even one of them. Sometimes people will say, well, he died prematurely. No, he died right on time from God's vantage point. Because God has set a perfect boundary on each life. It's a mystery to us. But God has a sovereign plan with each life. And so, the, again, the Bible says in Psalm 139, Before you live even one of your days, God has them all numbered. God knows exactly how long you're going to live. Moses said in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might apply a heart of wisdom. God, help us to live wisely. Help us to live for you. Help us to make our days count. Lord, help us to live with purpose and with insight and with wisdom. That ought to be the prayer of each and every person because we know that we're not going to live forever on this earth. We're going to die and face God. And so that that ought to mean that we would want to live in such a way that when we do die and face God in judgment, we would be rewarded for the way that we've lived by faith. Abraham, for the most part, had indeed lived wisely because he had been faithful to God. Now, I mentioned to you before that the New Testament refers to Abraham 
as a man who was the friend of God. Why is it that Abraham is referred to that way? What's the testimony of the New Testament when it comes to Abraham? I think, I think before we pass off from looking at the life of Abraham, we need to understand what it is that the New Testament says about that that sheds light on his testimony. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4 because I want you to see what Romans 4 uh, says about Abraham. Pick up reading with me in verse 3. It says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now skip over to verse 9. He says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised and so what is it that Paul is saying in Romans 4 stands out about the life of Abraham that ought to be a testimony to you and me today he walked by faith now how do we know because Paul tells us in this text how do we know that it had nothing to do with the law or circumcision Exactly. Genesis 15 says, He believed God and God credited unto him as righteousness. The law, the giving of the law was still 430 years away. And yet, God declared Abraham righteous. Based on Faith. Now, what did God do right after this? What sign did God give to Abraham of the covenant? Circumcision. But he was declared righteous while he was uncircumcised. And so what Paul is doing here in Romans 4 is he's gathering up all of mankind, whether you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, what is the way to be justified in the sight of God? By faith. By faith. You see what Paul's reasoning is there? 
Because if it was only after circumcision that he was declared righteous, the Jews might come along and try to somehow or another factor circumcision in. But God declared him righteous before. And then God gave him the sign of the covenant afterwards. And so his life is a testimony to Jew and Gentile alike of the necessity of faith. If you want to be right with God, you want to be at peace with God, you believe God. Specifically in the New Testament, we know that we believe God in regards to who? Jesus. We place our faith in Jesus. We're not justified by Jesus plus something else, some human work. We are justified by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Okay? Now, turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Because again, what I want you to see is there's four four texts in the New Testament, four primary texts that talk about uh, the example that Abraham gives to us. Look at verse 7 of Galatians chapter 3. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith... Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Look over at verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now down at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many... But as of one and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law it is no longer of promise but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And so according to Galatians 3, who are the sons of Abraham? Are the sons of Abraham those who have Jewish blood coursing through their veins? No. Who are the sons of Abraham? Those who have faith just like Abraham. Whether you are Jew or Gentile. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, if you have faith, faith in Christ, you are a son of Abraham.
Remember what Jesus had to say about that in arguing with the religious leaders? They kept saying, we're, we're sons of Abraham. We're descendants of him. And Jesus said God could raise up children uh, out of these stones. You are a son of Abraham through faith in Christ. Whether you're Jew or Gentile. Okay, Hebrews 11. Let's turn over to Hebrews 11. Because what do we learn about Abraham that's an example to us? From Hebrews 11. Look at verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. The heirs with him of the same promise for he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Look over at verse 17. By faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said in Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So what what stands out in Hebrews 11 about Abraham? His faith was a faith that cost. Initially, what did Abraham do? That demonstrated faith. He left. He left Ur to obey God. And then the writer of Hebrews says one more thing that he did to demonstrate his faith. What was it? He offered Up, Isaac. The writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 11, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Yet what is faith? Faith is that which is going to cost you. So all through chapter 11, he's giving characters from the Old Testament showing what their faith cost them, specifically Abraham leaving his homeland and then finally offering up Isaac. Then we come over to James chapter 2 because much the same argument is made in James chapter 2. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the devils believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him uh, for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. What James is saying is that Genesis 22, the offering up of Isaac shows that Abraham's faith back in Genesis 15 was genuine. It's not, he's not saying that, that Abraham was justified by his work of offering up Isaac. Rather, what he's saying is offering up Isaac shows that his faith was genuine. It was a faith that works. You're not justified by works. You're justified by faith and only faith. But if it is a real faith, a genuine faith, an authentic faith, true works are going to grow out of it. And so again, James is making the argument Not that he was justified by offering up Isaac, but the offering up of Isaac shows that his faith expressed back in Genesis 15 was genuine. So here are the four main texts in the New Testament that say something to us about Abraham. So all through the Bible, Abraham is held up as a man to be emulated in our own walk. And when we see these texts and what the Bible is saying about him, no wonder verse 8 of Genesis 25 says that when he finished his life, he was satisfied by his years. He was able to look back without any regret. Because he had lived a life of obedience to God. Two weeks ago, I know this spoke to Dennis. Two weeks ago I told you about preaching in the nursing home when I was in seminary. And Ernest. How Ernest would roll his wheelchair up after the sermon and sob Because he would say, Pastor, I know I'm saved. But I look back on my life and I've wasted my life. I've wasted my life. Because I didn't live for Christ. And I can't go back now. I'm old and I'm about to die. And I can't change anything now. I know I'm forgiven. But when I look at my earthly life, there's nothing to show for it. How sad. That's not how Abraham was. He looked back on his life and he was deeply satisfied by his years. Now verse 8 goes on to say here that he was gathered to his people. That's another way of pointing out in the Old Testament that death and the grave is not the end. 
Death in the grave is not the end. Now, it's interesting as we read on here in 25 about uh, Isaac and Ishmael burying him. It's, it's interesting that though they are estranged from one another, they come together to bury their father. And it is a bit ironic that Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob, will do the very same thing that though estranged, they will also come together to bury their dead. And so the Genesis accounts come to a close on the life of Abraham. His life continues to impact us today in the church beyond ways that his family could have ever imagined. And then look at verse 11. What does verse 11 say? Verse 11 says, And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahaya Roy. We are getting the signal here that the promises of God will continue through Isaac. Abraham the patriarch may be dead and buried, but the promises of God March on. Folks, human death does not interrupt the purposes of God. Amen? Nobody is indispensable, not even Abraham. The purposes of God march on. And so what's the lesson there? We need to live for the purposes of God, right? If we live for the purposes of God, our lives will have meaning and purpose and influence beyond our earthly years. If we live only for ourselves or only for the moment, we die and that's it. We die, our influence stops. But if we have lived for Christ and the purposes of God... We might die, but our legacy of faith continues on with those who come after us. And that's how the people of God ought to be living their lives. We ought to be living our lives so that after we are gone, it will have mattered. Because we will have left a legacy. For our children and grandchildren and those coming after us to follow. A legacy for them, an example for them to follow. Is that how you're living your life? And as I said at the beginning of tonight, if that's not how you're living your life, what adjustments do you need to make now? Now, before it's too late. Because all you have is now. Any thoughts you have in closing? As we bring to a close tonight looking at the life of Abraham. Any thoughts that you might have that you want to share with the group?
Yes. The fruit, yes. Good works are never the root of salvation. They are to be the fruit of salvation. Oh, absolutely, because Paul was reared in the school of Gamaliel, the most respected uh, teacher among the Jewish rabbis. And Paul's education was sitting at his feet. Sure, spent three years out in Arabia. Exactly. But Paul was very well equipped to show how the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ. And all through Paul's epistles, he, he weaves in the Old Testament in showing how it was fulfilled in Christ. Uh, God used his education and his training to, to do that in a very unique and powerful way. Okay, what else on the life of Abraham? Is there anything that stood out to you in particular? By faith in God's provision for our salvation. And in the old, folks, and it's a testimony to us too, and, and this is very important to realize. Sometimes people think incorrectly. People will say in the Old Testament, folks were justified or they were saved by works of the law. And in the New Testament, by faith. That's incorrect. It has always been by faith. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and how those sacrifices pointed to Him. In the New Testament times and in the church age, we look back on the, to the Messiah. They looked forward, we looked back, we look back. But justification in the sight of God has always been on the basis of faith. And, and that is what Paul, in, especially in these two passages, is trying to clarify for us. That, that Abraham was justified on the basis of faith, not the law. So if you hear anybody saying, uh, you know, it's good to be in the church today because in the Old Testament they were justified through all those laws and all those deeds and today we're justified by faith, correct them. And, and you can use Abraham, the life of Abraham, to correct them, to show that it's always been by faith.